On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the world's finest and only podcast about music that sounds great when you're eating a runza. All music sounds great while you're eating a runza. Well, I can't say that. (laughs) Billy Joel doesn't sound good eating a runza. (laughs) Billy Joel sounds like he's eating a runza. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Do you think most people out there know what a runza is? I hope so. In a perfect world, everyone would know what a runza is. It's a Nebraska delight. (laughs) Delicacy, delight, everything. It's everything. It's it's both of those wrapped up. It's everything. It's as Nebraska as Dick Cavett, Johnny Carson, runza. I think that's that's what we have. You one time you told me about how you went to like a minor league hockey game and if they scored a certain amount of goals, they everybody got runza. Yeah, it was I think I think the team name was the Lincoln Stars. And the deal was that any time throughout the season, if the team scores five goals in a night, then every ticket holder the next day gets a runza. Runzas are delicious meat and cabbage wrapped in bread obviously everybody knows (laughs) so when the team got to four goals the whole crowd just all at once for probably five minutes like we want runs we (laughs) want runs it's like it was amazing it was impressive and they did it we got a runs and it was delicious as it always is the players probably got paid and runs us No, this was the minor league, not the NHL. All right, this is Highway Hi-Fi, and we've shifted our our theme to be about stuffed sandwiches now, but we were were doing the music thing, but just kind of ran out of steam. So let's talk about sandwiches. Self-isolation has made us hungry. (laughs) So this is our second episode of what we're calling Desert Island Recordings. And it's all about records that were conceived, written, or recorded in some form of isolation. So last week we did Camper Van Beethoven's Tusk. And this week we're going to take a decidedly different type of record. Much more serious one and much more well-known, I think. Yes. Uh, Again, these are just our way of uh, keeping ourselves ourselves relatively sane and hopefully giving you something to listen to while you're uh, hanging out and keeping your family safe. So here we go. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind It was six below zero at 2.45 a.m. on December 1st, 1957 when a 19-year-old Charlie Starkweather donned a hunting cap and gloves and wrapped a bandana over his face. He pulled into the Crest gas station on Cornhusker Highway and had let the car idle for a few minutes. The attendant, Robert Colvert, was new and 
had already embarrassed Charlie in front of his girlfriend the other day by refusing to sell him a stuffed animal for her on credit. But revenge wasn't exactly why he was here. He wanted money and he wanted to be famous. He entered the service station with a 12-gauge, aimed at Culvert and ordered him to give him all the money he had, which ended up amounting to less than $100. Charlie demanded that Culvert open the safe too, but he had only started working there a couple weeks ago and didn't have the combination yet. Charlie took the money and Culvert out to a secluded area around 27th and Superior, and the two men got out of the car. Culvert lunged for the shotgun and got part of his face blown off in the process. Charlie Starkweather then took the barrel of his shotgun to the back of the dying man's skull and blew it completely apart with one more blast. This, he later claimed, was self-defense. A guy lunged at him. Charlie's girlfriend, the 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate, lived in a shack in the run-down Belmont neighborhood of Lincoln, Nebraska. Shack is probably too kind of word. It was more of a shanty with fake brick sides made out of asphalt, a chicken coop, and an outhouse in the back. Carol spent most of her time at Charlie's until he was evicted. They'd hang out in his apartment eating junk food, listening to 45s, and would throw knives into his walls. On January 21st, 1958, all that changed. Charlie had gone over to Carol's house to wait for her to get home from middle school, but her mother and stepfather had kicked him out. They hated him. He came back once Carol was home and burst into the house slamming his fist into Carol's mom's face when she started yelling at him to leave. Carol's stepfather ran at Charlie next, and they'd wrestled a bit until Charlie was able to get into Carol's room, where she'd been, and found his twenty-two rifle, which he'd left over there earlier. He loaded a shell into it quickly, and when Marion Bartlett, Carol's stepfather, charged into her room, swinging a claw hammer at him, Charlie shot him in the chest. Velda Bartlett came running in next carrying a butcher knife, and Charlie blew off part of her face before heading into the kitchen and killing Carol's two-and-a-half-year-old stepsister. Carol and Charlie hated that spoiled brat. Charlie then took Velda's butcher knife and used his fist to hammer it into Marion's neck, making sure he was dead. The bodies of Velda and the toddler were stuffed into the outhouse toilet, and Carol's stepfather was wrapped into a blanket and thrown into the chicken coop in the backyard, covered with the screen door. From there, the two natural-born killers executed another seven people before finally surrendering eight days later on January 28th. The surrender was mostly caused because Charlie took a car that had the emergency brake engaged and he didn't know what an emergency brake even was. The sheriff finally caught them, and when he did, Carol ran screaming from the car over to him, saying, Charlie Starkweather's in there and he's going to get me. Fugate was sentenced to life forever claiming her innocence. She served 17 years before being released, changing her name and moving to Michigan. Starkweather was executed in the electric chair on June 25, 1959. Because I grew up in Nebraska, the name Charlie Starkweather was always a presence somewhere. He was the most famous killer in Nebraska. Ryan and I have visited his, his grave. We've been to the opulent house where he and Carol... Killed the wards and their maid. I know where Carol's house was, and I know where Charlie Starkweather's apartment was. Terrence Malick made the film Badlands about him. Quentin Tarantino wrote Natural Born Killers about him. Most importantly, the title song of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album is written about him, from Starkweather's perspective. 
And though Springsteen credits Charlie with far too much intelligence, the song is perfect. An embodiment of the American dream grown rotten. A moment showing that the exceptionalism of this country is little more than just a violent, unfair game of survival of the fittest. Springsteen's Nebraska is a record born of isolation that paints the grimmest portraits of America, especially in light of it coming from the country's most famous rocker. Bruce Springsteen was totally spent after finishing a grueling year-long 140-date tour for his massively successful double record, The River. If the E Street Band wasn't the biggest live band before that tour, they certainly cemented their reputation after. The shows were long and tense, and by all accounts, some of the greatest stadium performances of all time. Springsteen had always been about connection. His fans felt like they had a deep relationship with him as a personal savior of rock and roll, and as an American icon. The demands of this reverence were real. Much like Dylan in the 60s, Springsteen felt as if he lost some of his own self to his perceived image. No musician can possibly imagine the trajectory of their career that surpassed fame and entered into adulation. Greetings from Ashbury Park was not yet eight years old. Retreating from the spotlight, Bruce Springsteen rented a house by a reservoir in Colts Neck, New Jersey. His time spent there allowed him for a little bit of respite from life on the road and time apart from the fans. He was able to fully take in and embrace his musical and literary influences, past and present. And while the quiet allowed him to take some time to reflect, he was dealing with insecurity, depression, and the immense pressure that he felt from all sides. And in the silence, he fell prey to a subconscious nagging about the unconnected dots from his youth. Like so many other times in his career, he turned to music and work to escape. However, in a rented room with nothing but his demons, the sound that sprang forth from the man was very different. In late December 1981, guitar tech Mike Batlin was tasked with creating a Porta studio in the boss's bedroom. The E Street Band was already slated to record for the new album in a few months, and Springsteen's idea was to record fuller demos that would help the band have a better idea of what he wanted when they convened. He was frustrated with the cost of writing and experimentation in the studio. The sound of the setup was a perfect complement to the starkness of the material and sparsely dark arrangements. Batlin crafted the makeshift studio using only a first-generation cassette four-track recorder, TIAC, Tascam Series 144, two Shure SM57 mics, and two microphone stands. The sound was mixed through an old Gibson Echoplex and an old Panasonic boombox acted as the mixdown deck, which is responsible for giving that warm reverberation that harkens back to the ghostly spaces left by Roy Orbison's mournful vociferations. The Nebraska demos came at a near-perfect time for Springsteen, being a cross-section of depth in self-exploration, his highest level of songwriting and creativity, and success in his career that allowed for unchecked ambition. In a Rolling Stone article from 84, he comments on this balance, saying, All popular artists get caught between making records and making music. If you're lucky, sometimes it's the same thing. 
when you learn to craft your music into recordings, there's always something gained and something lost. Left alone to his own devices, Springsteen recorded songs at a furious pace. The legend is that 15 of the 17 songs that eventually would be considered the Nebraska Session were recorded in a single night, January 3rd, 1982, which, incidentally, was an early title for the record. The truth seems more like it was a few days, if not a couple weeks. Either way, there is an immediacy to the songs, an unselfconscious voice, as the man himself describes it. Using only his acoustic guitar and a voice, Springsteen would record the demos in just a few takes, a couple songs in just one take. He would then go back, use the remaining tape tracks to overdub and add small flourishes, typically extra vocals, harmonica, tambourine, but some tracks even had additions of mandolin, glockenspiel, organ, synthesizer. The stark instrumentation with the echoey singing gave the demos a somnambulistic sheen. Somnambulistic. Like they were being broadcast to a semi-functional car radio by a transmitter located in a Rust Belt ghost town. Never meant to be heard outside Springsteen's circle, the 15 top choices were mixed down on a run-of-the-mill cassette tape, along with a few of the alternative takes and a live song or two. Springsteen says that the tape that would eventually become the album was carried around in his pocket without a case for a couple weeks. Eventually, he'd send the tape to John Landau to help prep for the studio sessions. In late March, the E Street Band convened to record the full arrangement of Springsteen's bare-bones songs, dubbed the Electric Nebraska Session, and a Bigfoot-esque legend amongst fans, not much is known of what these tracks actually sounded like. Either way, it was pretty clear that filling out most of the songs was an abysmal failure. After weeks of work, Springsteen realized that he'd only succeeded at doing nothing but damaging what he'd created. It sounded cleaner, more hi-fi, but not nearly as atmospheric or as authentic. Despite most of the songs being lost in translation, it should be noted that several tracks, including Born in the USA, Downbound Train, Pink Cadillac, and the rewritten Working on the Highway, would later be released on the Born in the USA album, or accompanying B-sides. And that seemed to work out pretty good. So I think you read a book kind of about, about this time. What happened to the rest of the Electric Nebraska songs? Yeah, the book was called actually Glory Days by Dave Marsh, and it is a biography of just the 80s for Bruce Springsteen. And the rest of the tracks have never been released. Nobody liked them at all. Um, I'm sure they're still somewhere. They've never been released. They were actually recorded. There's proof of the recording. There's, There's times they know exactly when they were recorded, who played on what, and the band members know that it happened as well. But the only ones that ever got out were the ones that ended up on Born in the USA. The songs that were really intended to be just on Nebraska just all fell flat every time. Born, on, Born in the USA was really the big exception. And they got that down in two takes. And I think that's the one that ended up being on the Born in the USA album two or three years later. Do you think they knew it was going to be so big? It sounded like they did. As soon as that synth is laid down... They got that kind of during the first take or right before the first take. And by the second take, they had absolutely nailed it. And a lot of the band at that point, a lot of them didn't even realize that Born in the USA was one of the ones that they had heard coming out of that cassette. It was so different. The words are all exactly the same, but now it's just got this driving anthemic sound to it. And I think we'll talk more about that one a little bit later on. But they also turned, obviously, the Pink Cadillac into a 
cunnilingus dirge into <laughs> this poppy B-side track. <laughs> it is sort of like his version of my dingling. It is. <laughs> <laughs> All ended up working out really well for them, as everything seems to have for Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen realized that Nebraska had to be what it was destined to be. He, he pulled the ragged tape out of his soon-to-be-famous jeans pocket and gave it to engineer Toby Scott and asked him to master the record off the tape. Scott thought it might be impossible to get a decent sound for a record, but you don't tell the boss no. It took several weeks and four or five mastering facilities, in which time Springsteen unsuccessfully attempted an in-studio solo version before Scott had a passable version to be pressed. For a while, they considered it a cassette-only release, but he thought it would be too gimmicky. Nebraska Sonically was truly one of the most challenging records to get made by a star as big as Springsteen, especially considering it was sandwiched between two production epics in The River and Born in the USA. Springsteen describes the origins of Nebraska as an unknowing meditation on my childhood and its mysteries. I had no conscious political agenda or social theme. I was after a feeling, a tone that felt like the world I'd known and still carried inside me. Clearly his family, particularly his troubled relationship with his father, a blue-collar worker who struggled with mental illness and alcohol, was a cloud hanging over the recordings. His father was coldly dismissive of Bruce, often berating him by calling him, among other things, outcast, misfit, weirdo, sissy boy, but also provided a driving force for Springsteen's music and success. The father and son have since reconciled, but at the time, this was very much an old wound festering. Additionally, John Landau, who'd played in bands of his own in the 60s, had become a music and film critic for Rolling Stone and was introducing Springsteen to all sorts of music, film, and literature he'd never known about. This was instrumental in shaping Springsteen's path from then on. John Huston's film adaptation of Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood and her stories in general were pivotal in showing him how to convey more meaning with fewer words. Better words. Springsteen was fully engaging with the art that was around him, allowing its influence over his craft in ways that he had rejected before. Springsteen name-checked several musicians that he wanted to emulate their ability to create music that is timeless. Robert Johnson, John Lee Hooker, the Stanley Brothers, Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and Hank Williams. Music, as he described, that sounded so good in the dark. Movies and books were also a huge part of his media consumption during his time off. He discusses the power of the American Gothic stories of Flannery O'Connor, the noir novels of James M. Cain, the quiet violence of the films of Terrence Malick, and the decayed fable of director Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. They were all guiding his imagination. He also stated that Howard Zinn's exploration of nationalistic exploitation, the people's history of the United States, was a significant presence in his songwriting at the time. Unsurprisingly, themes that arise on Nebraska are very evident as coming from these sources. Springsteen's narrator's voices represented something smaller and more impersonal than he had ever written. They are the outcast misfit weirdos that Springsteen's father had lamented. Killers, criminals, and degenerates are given equal sympathy and consideration as the hapless family men, conflicted lawmen, and helpless losers. The gut-wrenching realization you get from the album is that there is such a thin, blurry line between Starkweather killing folks for no reason at all and the down-on-his-luck worker who's losing everything and steals to keep his family fed. The absurdity of redemption. 
These songs are stories about people you see and assume lead such mundane lives that they're not worth considering. But something is always lurking, even in the most mundane of images. As Mark Richardson puts it, these songs had no heroes and no villains. Everyone in them was making their way with what they were given. Every grim or brutal scene had its own context and its own internal logic. Springsteen, like O'Connor, Kane, Malick, and Lawton, is able to capture the banality of evil and the futility of good, which creates a loneliness in our collective moral ambiguity. The record paints everyone as invisible until the moment when their personal hell spills out onto their neighbors. And while the disturbing character sketches of small anti-heroes are weighty enough, Springsteen acknowledges that three songs, Mansion on a Hill, Used Cars, and My Father's House, were semi-biographical stories that came out of his experience with his family and written from the perspective of a child, what he calls black bedtime stories. And certainly, the Nebraska songs weren't totally unprecedented. The song The River deals specifically with brutal realities and losing grasp of the American dream. Also from the previous record, Stolen Car and Wreck on the Highway detail similar dark themes. Still, taken as a whole, the song selected for Nebraska presents a wall of isolation. Escape seems impossible. Yeah, it seems like the Nebraska songs really started with those three from the river, the river, Stolen Car, and Wreck on the Highway. You wonder what the demos of those songs kind of sound like, if they're similar I don't think he did demos that way before. I think that was a big change for him. I think typically he would go in and work on the music with the band, even if he had something kind of outlined on his guitar and he had words written down. I think he would bring it all to them and do it with them as a demo, more so than just bringing them a tape full of stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. We're going to take a few minutes now and go through some of the most important songs of the session and the record. Nebraska itself, the title track, though it's told from the point of view that is Starkweather. A lot of the thoughts are Springsteen's, obviously not about murder. Uh, they're about being beaten down kind of for no reason other than there's just, according to the song itself, there's just a meanness in this world. In an interview a few months after the release of the Nebraska album, he said that that whole Nebraska record was basically about people being isolated from their jobs, from their friends, from their families, their fathers, their mothers, just not feeling connected to anything that's going on. And when that happens, there's just a whole breakdown. When you lose that sense of community, you just get shot off somewhere where nothing seems to matter. Sounds eerily similar to what might be happening now. They declared me unfit to live Said into that great void my soul be heard. He wanted to know why I did what I did. Sir, I guess it's just a meanness in this world. The line in the song about he's about to get executed, and they say, Into that great void, my soul be hurled. That line is still chilling when I hear it. It's just such a dark and permanent way to think about something. It's such a great line. And I don't think, obviously, that that had anything to do with Starkweather at that point, even though he's still the narrator. That's more Springsteen, I think, taking over. Starkweather was not a very bright fella. He wasn't 
not just that he wasn't educated. A lot of very intelligent people don't have educations. He couldn't he couldn't really read or write very well, but he was also pretty dumb. So he never would have thought those thoughts. Why was Springsteen so obsessed with Starkweather? Do you know anything about that? John Landau introduced him to the Badlands movie, Terrence Malick, Martin Sheen movie about Charlie Starkweather and Caroline Fugate. And maybe, maybe even, I have no idea if this happened, he might have just said, hey, you know that album that you did, Badlands, you ever seen this movie called Badlands? <laughs> anyway, he introduced him to Terrence Malick in that movie, and Bruce Springsteen just got kind of obsessed with like the real story. And so he, he ended up contacting a woman in Lincoln, Nebraska, who was a journalist at the time that the murders were happening, and she was one of the people who really knew a lot. She was one of the experts on what, on the whole Charlie Starkweather thing. And he called her up just one day, kind of out of the blue. And he said, yeah, this is Bruce Springsteen, you know, kind of introducing himself. And he wanted to know more about Charlie Starkweather. And she said, you know, I know I should know who you are, but (laughs) (laughs) she she had no idea who Bruce Springsteen was. Anyway, they, they spoke for a long time on the phone. I think it might've been hours. And eventually he went to Nebraska and, hung out with her and she kind of took a tour and of all the areas. And he, I guess he just really got into it. He's a big true crime guy. It's a good thing Springsteen wasn't around when, uh, or Springsteen wasn't writing during the true crime podcast fad. If Serial was out back then, we would have never got this album. <laughs> State Trooper is, a, is another interesting story and it is almost completely derived from a song called Frankie Teardrop by a band called Suicide who Springsteen absolutely adored. Suicide is is great if you don't know them, but they're not two uh, circles that are going to come together too much as far as Springsteen fans and uh, Suicide fans. But Springsteen has been quoted saying, if Elvis came back from the dead, he would sound just like Alan Vega, who's the singer for uh, Suicide. There's that driving beat and that slow-building story and then, like, this ungodly scream at the end uh, in both songs. They're just blood-curdling type sounds that really no human should make. It makes the songs both haunting and intriguing. Yeah, and Springsteen even covered one of their songs. He covered it in, I believe, in, started covering it in the 90s or early 2000s called Dream Baby Dream. And then he even put that song on his that covers album he had called High Hopes, like 2014. He's a big fan. Their voices sound very similar. You had some quote about Elvis being, Alan Vega being closer to Elvis, but he sounds like Springsteen and Elvis combined. Frankie Teardrop is a creepy, creepy song. Ain't somebody out there Frankie, look at his wife. Shut up. 
Johnny 99 is yet another song on the Nebraska album about people who have debts that honest men can't pay. Uh, there's futility in the voice of the protagonist. That plant in Mawa that closed down is not going to be reopening at all. It's not just closed down for a little while. It's done. And there are no other jobs. And these people have families. A lot of the songs are about trying to live through this kind of arbitrary, crippling punishment and finding some way through it or not, really. And I think Johnny Cash covered this song. I think he had a whole album called Johnny 99 with this and maybe another Nebraska song. And it was released just a couple years after this. So an odd thing happens at the end of the record, and Joe and I have spent some time debating this this week. The final track, Reasonably, seems to let out a little breath and kind of grants just maybe the tiniest bit of melancholy hope. Of course, we've been through this desolate crawl across the darkest parts of America's heartlands, and it's it's really honestly hard to know if Springsteen just kind of isn't fucking with us with the song. Sort of like, is this a sarcastic wink at us, or is this like a sincere gesture, even if it might be futile? Or it could just be like an ode to grit saying, you've got to find a reason to believe, even if all you've known is disappointment. The song, if you're not familiar, it's uh, a song that starts with a man poking at a dead dog, and then it goes to a jilted woman, and then a groom left at the altar, and then a baby being baptized as an old man dies. And at the end of each verse, there's you still have a reason to believe. I, I don't know. Like I kind of go back and forth over whether this is kind of true hope or if it's just cynical. It's not an uplifting song. It's almost the opposite. People are finding a reason to believe even when all they're finding is failure over and over and over again. The more I've listened to it, and I've listened to the record a couple times this week and preparing for this, and we've read a lot about it and talked a lot about it. I forget who it was, but somebody would always put a hymnal, like a gospel song at the end of their album to kind of wash away the sins of the album. I do not think he's doing that here. I think he's, I think it is sort of a the cynical icing on the cake, so to speak. It's a beautiful song. It's one of the most endearing songs, and it certainly can be taken as a hopeful song. It's, I guess you could make up your own mind about it. And that's one of the great things is it's open for debate, but it, to me, I'm with you, Joe. I just see it as him kind of poking fun, poking fun like he's poking at a dead dog. I almost feel like thinking that it's an uplifting song is like thinking Born in the USA is a song about how great America is. Right. If you just take the the briefest part of the chorus, you still got a reason to believe. It does sound like that. Because I think even sonically, it's a little bit peppier than some of the other songs. Um, the chorus is much different than everything else. Maybe Atlantic City has a little bit of it, but it's it's yeah. different. It has a happier feel to it. It's almost like it's trying to trick you. Yeah. Well, we'll play a little clip here, and you can make up your own mind. Take a baby to the river. How will you be calling? Wash the baby in the water. Take away a little cow sound. 
Of course, the songs from the Nebraska Sessions that were left off the album are in many ways as telling of the isolation Springsteen was experiencing as the 10 that made the final cut. Perhaps one of the most startling demos that was left off the album was the demo version of Born in the USA itself that we've been talking about. The demo is the song that has become such a cultural touchstone but stripped of all its grandiose stadium theatrics, leaving a harrowing tale of a soldier who's returned from war. The dramatic irony that so many failed to pick up on in the single version is impossible to miss as it becomes clearer and clearer that the protagonist has nowhere to run and got nowhere to go. Though the album version became one of the biggest songs ever released, it pales in power when compared to its skeletal form. Here's a snippet of each. Come back on the refineries. Iron Man says, son, if it was up to me, I'd go down to see the yes. Son, don't you understand? Born in the USA. Born in the USA. Child Bride was another song that eventually was reworked for the Born in the USA album, but it was retitled as Working on the Highway. The album version is kind of a rollicking, rockabilly, twisted dance tune about chasing a girl and getting in trouble. The demo, interesting enough, a lot like Born in the USA, is pretty much the same story, but the tone is one that it shows the desperation that leads to this emptiness and sorrow. It's a 180 from the fun skirt chasing adventure. And even the title child bride has kind of a sinister tone. Whereas working on the highway is kind of rock and roll sounding song. Either way, child bride is probably one of the best songs that was left off Nebraska. It's a pretty song. And here it is. Well, I saved my money and I put it all away. I went to see your daddy We didn't have much to say Said my son Can't you see she's just a little girl Who don't know nothing About the meanness in this world Say look my money the final outtake from the session that we wanted to highlight is Losing Kind, which has never been officially released. 
Thematically, it fits the session's overall themes of searching for something to hold on to and failing to even hold on to your own self. It's a gorgeous tune. It absolutely deserves to be on this album. I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah, it's crazy. And it, I mean, it didn't even make like tracks and stuff. She was standing outside the bar. Said she was waiting for me, but I knew that that was just a lie, and I knew I was missing losing time. There are some pretty cool bootlegs of like the complete Nebraska sessions. Mm-hmm. I don't think they've ever been ever officially released. But um, there are definitely bootlegs out there. We've looked at a few of them. There's just really great songs. Yeah, there's one. It's a triple LP called How Nebraska Was Born. It's on pink vinyl. It looks really well made. I haven't seen any reviews of its quality. On eBay, it goes for about 120 bucks. But I know that you can get it from a distributor for $79.99. Springsteen fans are pretty ravenous when it comes to recordings. Like, it was no problem getting research for this this one. Maybe the easiest thing we've ever had to research in terms of the amount of information out there. Yeah. No one in the Springsteen camp quite knew what to do with his recordings. Some suggested he make a double album with what became of Born in the USA on one disc and Nebraska on the other. That way more people would hear it. But Springsteen didn't want people to just hear it. He wanted people to get it and understand it. And for that, it needed to be its own record. After failed attempts at re-recording the album with himself and a guitar in a studio, it just sounded hollow compared to the demos. Landau pretty much just flat out said, release it as it was, which is what Bruce wanted the whole time. The record company at first said that, sure, they'll release it, but they, they wanted to put it out at a discounted price which Springsteen balked at. He didn't want this to be gimmicky, like the cassette-only release we mentioned earlier. He didn't want this to be some discount that made it seem like he didn't think it was as worthwhile as his other stuff. When it was finally released, it was projected to just sell 100, maybe 200,000 copies by by the record company, and it ended up selling over 800,000, which is pretty good for this kind of a record. Critics raved about it. Fans didn't necessarily... Uh, they were seemed to be split about 50-50. They either, they either liked it quite a bit, loved it like we do, or they hated it. Springsteen, after this, he was considering recording and releasing another, at least another album kind of like this in the similar fashion of just recording in this way. It must have seemed some, in some ways cathartic to him or something. But Landau talked him out of it. He said that the E Street Band was not going to wait around. They all were already kind of nervous that he wasn't going to ask them back after the Nebraska ones or have them play with them. Stephen Van Sant had already left, and that was sort of Bruce's connection to the E Street Band anyway. That's the only person he really spoke with in the band all that much. And Landau knew how important those other albums, albums before Nebraska and after, have been. And so did Springsteen. He just had to kind of mention it to him again, and he realized it. So then they went in and they released the Born in the USA album. But they They also went in and added a few other tracks, but most of it was already ready to go. It's unbelievable that in the period of a couple weeks, you could write two fully realized albums that could sound so different. That's crazy. 
The other thing we kind of gleaned over, but it's if you're interested in that sort of stuff, it's worth kind of talking about or re- reading about is how difficult it was to get the cassette tape that had had lint all over it from his jean pockets and to make that into a commercially viable, you know, mass produced vinyl record. They went through so many engineers and so many studios and so many people couldn't work with it till they found somebody who could. And even then it was just the technical engineering part of it seems like it was quite a feat. You don't really think about it because it sounds great. I have two traditions when I drive through Nebraska and I've driven through Nebraska many, many times. When you cross over Colorado to Nebraska on I-76, about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, there's a giant cattle ranch. You can smell it for miles. And as soon as I hit that, I always put in my tape of Nebraska, and I kept that tape forever just for that moment. Um, And I'd listen to Nebraska because between there and the next 40 minutes, there was nothing. It was just flatlands. It was just Nebraska, and it, it sounded perfect. And then the other tradition is as soon as I saw a runza, I went and stopped and <laughs> I got a runza. <laughs> and then 30 miles later, first bathroom you see, you've got to let that runza go. <laughs> it is a dark album. It's a good, it's a really good record for, for these days. It is really prescient. Like there's a lot of stuff going on there at the same time and a lot of stuff that he touches on and even refers back to in interviews. This is just an album about isolation. It's a great album. I think we're going to go ahead and play a couple songs now, too. All right, I'm going to go first. This is a song called Endless Sleep by a guy named Jody Reynolds. She's nowhere around Traced her footsteps down to the shore Praise she's gone forevermore I looked at the sea and it seemed the same I took it bare from you away I heard a voice crying in the deep Come join me baby in my endless sleep Why did we quarrel? Why did we fight? Why did I leave her alone tonight? That's why her footsteps ran into the sea. That's why my bed has gone from me. I looked at the sea and it seemed to say, I took your bed from you away. I heard a voice crying in the deep. Come join me, baby, in my endless sleep. Ran in the water, heart full of fear. There in the break, I saw her near. Reach for my dog, 
held her to me Stole her away from the angry scene I looked at the sea and it seemed to say You took your baby from me away My heart cried out, she's mine to keep I saved my baby from an endless sleep Endless sleep That was Jody Reynolds with Endless Sleep. It was a single released in 1958 on Demon Records. I picked this song because I really felt like it kind of went with the vibe of Nebraska. It's kind of that dark, rockabilly, uh, teen tragedy type pop song. Reynolds wrote it in 56, and I guess he um, was at a bar or a diner or something, and he heard Heartbreak Hotel. He then pumped a bunch of nickels into the machine and played Heartbreak Hotel five times in a row and then went right next door to his hotel room and uh, wrote Endless Sleep. And he knew it was a hit. He, he said, this, this is it. So he put it right into his uh, set with a band he had at the time called The Storms, and they played it a couple nights later in Yuma, Arizona. It's basically the song of a teenage girl who, who runs off after they get into a, a little bit of a fight uh, and originally, uh, she drowns, but the record companies rejected the song because it was too depressing. So Reynolds kind of relented and changed it a bit. So the protagonist saves the girl from drowning. Uh, it eventually got released by Demon Records in L.A. Good song, that kind of great, old, creepy, rockabilly type stuff. And uh, yeah, I felt like it just went nice with Nebraska. All right, and the song I'm going to play is a song we talked about earlier. It's by a band called Suicide, and the song is called Dream Baby Dream.
All right, that was Dream Baby Dream by Suicide. Suicide, who are Alan Vega and Martin Rev. We talked a bit about them earlier on. This version of the song is a live version from an album I have called Ghost Riders. It was recorded in 1981 at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis for the, it's like a 10th anniversary suicide show. The original appears on their second album. It's a really impressive song, and it does sound a lot, has a lot of the State Trooper in it, what would eventually be State Trooper, because it was recorded well be, well before that. The studio version is really synthy, um, and it has a lot of the weird screams in it. A lot of their songs do, really haunting. This one, I think, might even be better. It took me a while to really get into it. I thought it was just kind of mediocre for the first few times I listened to it, as compared with the original version of it, but I like this one more now. It just took me a while to get to that point. Suicide kind of pulverizes you into beauty. All right, well, that's about it for us. Um, So we are going to uh, hopefully do a few more of these um, Desert Island recordings where we are picking out albums that are recorded in isolation. And, you know, we'll do some popular ones. We'll do some maybe less well-known ones, but... We've liked doing that. We're, we're still um, doing our main um, normal episodes. There's kind of a bigger theme with full trivia and more songs. But uh, we've enjoyed doing this. And like I said, we're, we're trying to keep ourselves, uh, our minds active and trying to give something back for everybody else to have something to listen to if you are so kind as to listen to it. We want to uh, say thank you to our podcast network, Pantheon. Speaking of uh, you needing some stuff to pass the days, if you're in self-quarantine, Pantheon's got a whole bunch of podcasts, and you'll find something you like for sure. Definitely check out Pantheon Podcast. And if you have a chance, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, find us on Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, our handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. On Facebook, just search for us. It's easy. You can email us at highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com anytime with any questions or comments you have. We'd love to hear from you. If you got any good ideas for isolation records, we'd love to hear them. We might be in here for several months. So we're gonna if we're gonna try to keep this up at you know one every week or two, we're gonna need some ideas. So the other thing is make sure you're out. Try to support record stores, try to support musicians. This is a really horrible time for people who who make money off records, whether they create records or sell records or are musicians. So do what you can to, to support a record store. Lots of places are shipping, so go ahead and buy a record, get it shipped, or buy it directly from a band or buy a gift card or something. But we appreciate everybody listening, and we'll talk to you next time. The stark instrumentation with the echoey singing gave the demos a sonambulous... <laughs> God damn. Uh. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money... Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.